Alright, you can go ahead and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So, when you were in elementary school, did you ever play that game telephone with your classmates? Did, did the phrase at the beginning of the telephone line ever stay the same by the time you got to the end? Right? Because you, you sit down, somebody says, all right, pick a word. We could do this right now, but we don't have time. Maybe we'll play it over lunch. Right? Or so, yeah, everybody, or, or play it in your CGs this week. That would be a fun little icebreaker for community groups. Let's play a game. Okay. And then say something, say something really complex, because we're all above the age of six. So I think we can handle the word hat or something like that. Let's pick something complex. Like that word that we've been talking about for the last few weeks that everybody remembers now, which is perusia. Very good. Maybe that would be a good word to pass around your telephone. Because I guarantee you, by the end, somebody's going to mispronounce something and it's going to come out sounding like ham and cheese sandwich. Right? Because that's how that works at that age especially. Right? Something gets communicated and then does not get passed on maybe as effectively as it needs to, and by the end, you've got a completely different meaning with a completely different understanding than you had at the very beginning. So that happened to me one time in third grade. I I warned Dad that I was going to tell this story. (laughs) Some of you will have heard this story before, and it's okay. It's still a fantastic story. So... By the end, one of us comes out looking great in this story, and I'm the one telling it. So, third grade, um, as you do, you go to lunch, and, and as they do, one of your friends comes over and says, I don't know, I think, I, think, I think the other kid's name was Donnie. We'll go with Donnie. Sits down across from you at the lunch table and says, did you hear that Donnie's parents are selling him? <laughs> What? They're selling Donnie. Come look. So I'm like, what? You walk over there. You walk over right outside the classroom. And this is a small school. I mean, like, K through 12 was probably, what, 40, 50 people? Maybe a little more. Maybe 100. I don't know. I couldn't count then. It was third grade. And I was born in Alabama. So, um, so they say they're selling Donnie. You go over, walk, you look over outside their door. They just had, like, a little board of baby pictures because it was like the week to highlight this kid like their parents get to send a bunch of baby pictures and growing up pictures just so they can kind of get to know the kid better that that's all it was I said those are just baby pictures and they said oh and I went and sat back down about five minutes later teacher's assistant comes and walks up sits down says why did you say that I said says say what say that their baby pictures look stupid I said I didn't say that. She said, that's not what I heard. And this isn't the last we're going to talk about this. And she got up and left. Five minutes later, the actual teacher comes and sits down. I can't believe you. You, of all people, I would not have expected this from. What? That you would say their baby pictures look stupid. And I'm like, I, I, I didn't say that. I, I really, I didn't. She's like, I, that is, we'll talk more. She gets up. <laughs> So then, one of the school administrators, who could remain unnamed, but it was my dad, (laughs) comes out of his office into the lunchroom and just looks at me and goes, I'm like, come on. So I get up, and I go walking into his office. The kid whose baby pictures are 
being discussed is standing in his office with kid's mom. Now, now, now this kid was adopted. So this kid is a wreck. <laughs> like, like, think of a kid melting down, say, in the second or third grade, and then double it. Right? Kids just, just exploding with tears. Right? And mom is sitting there consoling her, her, her puppy. Right? So you've got, you've got well, we'll go, we'll go mama bear consoling baby bear. My daddy bear is sitting right there. And, he said, and she's like, we don't have many baby pictures of them. Why would you say something about that? And dad's like, you need to apologize right now. And I'm like, I'm sorry. <laughs> and I go back, sit down at the lunch table, and I immediately, my turn to melt down, explode into tears. And my teacher comes up and says, what's wrong? I said, I've been telling you, that didn't happen the way you've heard it. You have misheard. I didn't say. It. I didn't say misheard. I was in third grade. I said something like, "I didn't." That's not what happened. I just baby picked. And then for the rest of the day, we ended up getting to play on the playground because there was like a high council where everybody that was involved in this story got brought into a room, and you had the teachers kind of going, "All right, step one. What happened here?" And I said, "They said they're selling Donnie," and I said, "No, those are baby pictures." They said, "All right, you're dismissed." That was so. In the end, it all worked out. Dad did, as a as a token of making it up to me, let me have a sip of Mountain Dew. Which third grade? That doesn't happen very often. You did. You did. No, no, no. I'm not going to leave him looking that bad. No, no. Once he got the real story, he felt okay. He he apologized. All that. He's not. He's not a horrible person. He was. He was working with the information that he had been given. Right. That's exactly what the Thessalonians have been doing. They've been working with the information they've been given. The problem is, through the telephone line, through the passing around of information, ever since Paul started teaching them about end times stuff, which we've been talking about for the last month or so here, they have gotten the wrong idea. Somewhere along the line, it got mucked up, and, it's, and, and now they have decided that they think that Jesus has already returned. Like they, and that they missed the boat. Uh, Paul had obviously, we're obviously in 2 Thessalonians, and so he sent them a letter talking about end time stuff. He's talked about Jesus gathering the church together to be with him forever. And he was hoping that this would be a comfort to them. Well, it turns out that either through some misunderstanding or somebody misinforming the church in Thessalonica, they have missed the picture. They think that Christ has already come and that they have missed the boat. So they are confused, and now it's Paul's turn to kind of set the record straight. So, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 12, and I'm just going to go ahead and read everything. And just stick with me, because as I'm reading through here, there's going to be some stuff you're going to be like, what is that talking about? We will take time and we will discuss it today. So here we go. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for the day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. 
who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe in the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Got it? Good. Let's pray. All right. I thought I was going to need 45 minutes. All right, so here we go. So verses 1 and 2. So the first question that Paul's immediately going to address is, did Jesus already come back? Because some of you guys seem to be thinking that, and, and you know that I have already taught you about this. You know that when I was there, I explained. He's not coming back yet. He hasn't been back yet. So with as much time as Paul um, spent discussing the return of Christ in 1 Thessalonians, and then, you know, we already talked about how quickly he'd gotten run out of the city during the time he was there. He didn't have a long time to teach them everything that they needed to know about all of this. So it's not surprising that they got a little bit confused. I mean, we still get confused about things as we're studying, right? But, but as much of a point of emphasis as he made it in the first letter that he sent to him, it makes sense that he wants to make sure everything's clear in the second one and his follow-up. He really wants to make sure that they are settled on how this is going to take place. So there are several ways that this could have happened, and he kind of, he kind of implied a couple of those uh, in verse 2. Um, either by a spirit or a spoken word, so maybe somebody just misspoke when they were reading his letter, or misspoke when they were teaching, or, or said something that wasn't, that wasn't necessarily definitive or very clear, and they just misunderstood. Um, or maybe even somebody sent a letter trying to represent themselves as Paul and Silas and Timothy, and saying, Hey, I've got some extra teaching for you. He already came back. You guys missed it. You should be a little bit worried about that now. So he's saying, unless you know it's from me, unless you know this is something that I taught, basically saying, compare what you're reading to what I've already taught you. Because what I've already taught you isn't going to change. The truth that I already taught you is still going to remain truth. So if you are shown anything that kind of counteracts that, stay away from that. That's just going to confuse you. That's just going to mess you up. I think that's good advice for us, too. Like, like if, if something that somebody tells us can't be backed up by Scripture, if something that I say or Daniel says isn't, isn't supported by what Jesus says, then you probably shouldn't buy it, right? Um, I, think, I think back to when we were in studying through the book of Acts, and we got to the section on the Bereans, and, and Paul teaches them all this truth, and they say, that's good stuff, but we're going to go research and make sure that what you're saying is good, what you're saying jives with the rest of scripture and he was like awesome do that i want you to know that the things that i'm saying to you are in fact inspired by god and so that's what he's saying he's reminding them don't don't just buy into things that you hear unless it jives with the rest of scripture unless it jives with the things that i've been saying because later on in verse 15 we didn't read it today he says so then brothers stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us either by our spoken word 
or by our letter. He's saying, hold on to the things that we've taught you. Because, because the things that we're telling you are from the Holy Spirit. They are, they are of God. They are worth holding on to tightly and not wavering on. But Paul doesn't really want to focus on how they came to misunderstand. He doesn't want to get at the, all right, so let's unpack how we got to this point. He doesn't really care that that's the way they got to that conclusion. What he really cares about is that they're wrong. They, they're assuming that Christ has come back, and he immediately wants to establish what's really happening, what's really going to happen in the future. And throughout history, throughout church history, we've had all kinds of varying opinions about the end times. And, and of, of all the weeks that we could spend a lot of time, like I could get the flannel board out, and like I could show you a representation of all these different views, and we could spend an hour doing that. This isn't going to be theology class today. We can talk about that. If you want to talk about that more in your CGs, that would be a really interesting CG discussion, just to kind of dive into scripture that talks about the end times and say, what does this mean? What is this number of days and these dates and these sorts of things? What does all that really talk about? And you can spend some time talking about that, but, but that's not really where I want to focus today. I will go ahead and tell you, just so you have the idea. Here are some of the different views that are out there. Some people actually do think that Christ has already come back. They call themselves Jehovah's Witnesses, and they believe that Christ came back on October 1st, 1914. And they think that right now, I think, I think, I'm, I haven't fully versed myself in Jehovah's Witness theology, but I believe that they think that he came back and now he's establishing a new sort of heaven for us all to go to after this one. Like he was done with that one, so he came back, and now he's going to do I, So... The view that the Thessalonians are holding on to, I would have thought that one we're okay with saying no one thinks that, but apparently that's not the case. So some people still actually believe they came back. Then you have what I would say is kind of the traditional like Baptist view, which is like, here we go, big words, premillennialism. So like, like at the end of time, there's going to be, Christ is going to come back, take his church up to heaven. There's going to be this period of like seven years where things get really bad on earth, and then Christ is going to come back and he's going to reign on earth for a thousand years after that. That's the one that I grew up um, being taught. That's the one that if you read various popular series about the end times, that's the one that, that they would have taught in like the Left Behind series. That Christ is going to come back and that every single thing that we read in Scripture is going to happen very literally. And I don't have a problem with taking scripture very literally. There's also this third view um, called amillennialism. And that is talking about an idea where a lot of the things that you read in Revelation or some of the stuff that we talk about today is a bit more metaphorical in nature. And that in a sense, we're living in this millennial period right now, this long period of time where Christ has already gone back to heaven after his resurrection. And now this, this kind of this age of the church, where the church is going about taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, is taking place until Christ returns to take his church to be with him forever, and he's going to rule and reign on earth forever. So those are kind of three different views on the way the end times could work. That, that there's all this stuff that's coming up in the future, that all this stuff has already happened, and that we're kind of somewhere in the middle of it right now. Um, 
We'll talk a little bit more maybe about where I settle on some of that here in a few. Um, but, but I want us to know that there are a bunch of di- – the big thing is I want us to understand there are a bunch of different ways that people think this could play out. But no matter what, in the end, Jesus rules and reigns over us. That's, that's, that's the key point. So let's not get hung up on those things um, except the Jehovah's Witnesses one. That one's just wrong. Okay? <laughs> Don't get hung up on that one at all. Like, I'll just go ahead and say definitively the whole October 1st thing. We're not going to go with that. So, verses 3 and 4. So has Christ come back? Of course he hasn't. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So Paul emphatically denies that Christ has come back. First thing he says, that's not the case. And he says, here's how you know that's not the case, because there's a bunch of stuff that has to happen before he comes back. The first of which he describes as the rebellion... And we note here, he doesn't give us a lot of information about what that represents, what the rebellion is. Because what he does say is, I taught you all about this when I was there. So I'm not going to write to you more about that. Now for us, we're kind of like, Paul, come on, man. You didn't explain it to us. You could write it down so that we could know. But, but it's kind of left, I think, intentionally vague so that we won't get hung up on it. So that we won't sit here and, you know, get paralyzed by the fact that, Oh, I'm seeing this happen. This is exactly how Paul said it was going to happen. So Christ is about to come back. So I'm just going to stop doing whatever it is that I'm doing. But that's not because that's not the point. We're not supposed to stop actively being the church just because we know Christ is about to come back. In fact, what we read a couple weeks ago, Paul really said, you might be doing what you're supposed to be doing as the church really aggressively as Christ comes back. Who wants to be caught doing nothing when Christ returns? So so it's not so I think it's left intentionally vague. So that we will kind of, you know, keep going, knowing that it could be at any moment and not try to give us all these. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. This is exactly what it's going to look like. So. Um, so there's that. So he says the rebellion is going to happen and then the revealing of the man of lawlessness. And he's going to spend a lot of time talking about this character. Now, now, if you read the Left Behind series like I did, they really said, here's the there's going to come this one guy. This very specific, very finite human being who's going to be born, he's going to be this character. I'm not saying that's not the case. Definitively. But, here's what we do know. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Timothy is also kind of discussing what it's going to look like when we reach the end, right before Christ returns. So, here's what he says. 2 Timothy chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. But understand this. That in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. I'll just pause. Disobedient to their parents. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And then he throws in this piece of advice, avoid such people. So what Timothy's saying is by the time we get to the end, there's going to be a whole lot of wicked people that the church ought not be living as. Maybe not, maybe not taking the gospel too. I'm not saying we should just shy away from every form of evil to the point that we don't take the gospel to people, but like, we're, we're, not, we're not with them. We're not, we're not of them. We're not living like them. But there's going to become an increased 
time of evil and wickedness before Christ comes back. Now, I think we could start at the resurrection and ascension of Jesus and just kind of look at a timeline and say, when did, that, when did the world start looking that way? And I would venture to guess that that day there was already wickedness and evil in the world, people that looked just like that. And I think we could safely say that that has only increased as the population of the world has increased for the last couple of thousand years. Right. So the leader of that rebellion is described as a man of lawlessness, which actually echoes kind of a description given to a future king. This is in the book of Daniel, chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 36 and 37. And the king shall do as he wills. He exalts himself. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. And he says, this guy's going to set himself up in the temple of God. So that, and, and, and he's going to essentially declare himself as a god greater than any other god that anybody's ever known. So that, that's the world that we're looking for before Christ returns. A world where, where evil is rampant, everyone essentially is running around doing whatever they please, seeking only their own good, um, they're, they're disobedient, they're, they're, they're cruel, they're harsh with other people. And then somebody's going to rise above them who is going to declare himself to be greater than any god in the past. In a sense, this guy's going to have his own parousia, we've been using that word, arrival, that we've been using to describe Christ, but he's essentially going to have his own revealing to the world. He's going to declare himself, I am greater than any who have come before me. John also described this in 1 John chapter 2. And I know I'm going through these fast. If you, if you don't get all these written down, I can give these to you afterwards. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that, that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. The last hour, according to John, uh, is the time after Christ's resurrection and before he comes back. Until he ultimately returns. And no one knows when that's going to be. But, but what we see is there's going to be this time of increased evil. With, with leaders who are rising up to, to own that evil and, and declare themselves to be great, greater than any who have come before them. And, and we've seen that throughout history, right? Um, we've seen that throughout history. There have been guys who have come throughout history. Uh, you could look right after the ascension of Christ. You could look at Nero. You could look at Hitler. You could look at, at any number of great evil world leaders who have risen to power and tried to declare themselves greater than all who have come before them. That is, that is kind of the constant motivation for wicked leaders throughout world history. To be the greatest. To be the guy that beat the greatest guy before you. And every single one of these guys keeps stepping up to the plate and increasing the amount of evil in the world. But it keeps going on. So I think when he's talking about he's going to set himself up in the, in, in the temple of God, what's he talking about? Is he talking about like, like a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem? Is he talking about the original temple that was destroyed in AD 70? Is he talking about some sort of metaphorical temple 
that includes like just all of creation. He's going to try to set himself up, set himself apart from the rest of God's creation and say, say, I am greater than all that are around me. I kind of find myself dwelling on that, thinking that maybe that's the case. Um, that it's not that we're waiting on this one specific guy who's going to go into this one specific building and say this one specific phrase, but that, that the more we look around us, the more we see all of these things are playing out in our society and have been in an increasing fashion ever since Christ ascended back into heaven and began to wait for the time when he would come back for his church. So we're, so we're out here actively being the church. We're taking the gospel to people. And, and evil is still increasing all around us. We talked about that last week. I mean, we've had a couple of pretty crazy weeks in what could become a very vital moment for the church, especially in our country, right? Where we've seen more and more evil taking place. And, and it's like, what's the church going to do about this? Well, we're going to just con- have to continue to be the church. We're going to have to continue to just take the gospel just like we've instructed. We haven't been told to do anything more than just go make disciples. So let's just focus on that. And not, and like Paul's saying, don't get hung up on the fact about when Christ is coming back. Just know that he is and be ready for him when he comes back. So Paul goes on to continue to describe this, this guy. Um, verse 5, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Again, Paul is just saying, we've already talked about this, so I'm not going to go into great detail, which doesn't really help us out. But, but he's, he says, we talked about this guy. You know what we're talking about. Uh, verse 6, and you, know what is coming is rest- and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Okay, let's talk about this idea. Um, that this man of lawlessness, this, this, this force of evil, we'll just call it a force of evil, is already at work, though it's being restrained. If we were looking for one guy, and they had been looking for one guy 2,000 years ago, that guy must be very old by now, right? If he's actively still working, because he said even then, he was, already, he was already at work. Even though he was being restrained, he was already taking action, which is why I don't think we can look to just one person who's going to come live one finite life You know, be born, this is the guy, and then the end comes. Because he's saying this force has already been actively working in the world. The forces, and he says it later in verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, right? The power of Satan has been at work our whole lives and the whole life of the church, and he's been pretty active in the Old Testament as well. Actively trying to fight against God and try to deceive people and, and draw people away from salvation, right? That's, that's, been his, that's been his motivation seemingly forever, ever since creation. And he's saying that, and he's saying that this force has continued to be working even ever since Christ was, was ascended back into heaven to wait till the time that he would come back for us. And so I think instead of focusing on who's it going to be, and we could all lay out, we could, put a, we could make a bulleted list of all the people who, who we think it could be. Maybe it's the, maybe it's the Pope. Yeah, it's got to be the Pope. It's got to be the Pope. It's got to be, be whoever the next president is or whoever the third president to be 
right-handed after the 22nd president is, or, you know, whatever. We could come up with all sorts of numbers and diagrams, and we could do all sorts of equations to say it's obviously this person. Maybe we don't have a name, but we have a position, or we have a date, or we have... Satan has been actively working and fighting against the church for a very long time. And he's reminding them, he's actively working right now. You have an enemy that you are fighting against. There's somebody trying to keep you trying to keep you from accomplishing the mission that God left to you. So some of the commentaries that I read said this force that's holding him back, they, they were really shy to be decisive about what that force is. They're like, is it, is it an actual person that's holding something back? Is it, is it like... He's like there's an angel that's like sitting there holding on to a guy by like a leash and he's just getting ready to let go. When I read this, and maybe it's just because I read things and I just make snap decisions real quick and then I have to go back and decide if I think it's true. But so far, I haven't, I haven't gone back and questioned myself on this. So maybe, maybe, maybe this is some Holy Spirit here trying to give me a little insight into what this idea is. Here's the thing I think I can decisively say. A force governed by God. That's as far as I'll go. Maybe it's an angel. Maybe it's, maybe it's the hand of God himself. is holding back the forces of Satan. He's not going to let them have their full impact on our world right now. That tells us a couple of things. One, God is merciful. That he's not letting evil run completely rampant over all of society. Like we think it's bad. Right? We think times are tough. Uh, ask people who are in other countries where they act, cannot just gather like this and study the Bible. And tell them, you think it's bad, but apparently God is holding back evil. He is restraining evil. So one, God is merciful that he's not let evil overwhelm us entirely. He's not let it get even worse than it already has. Right? That's, that's one. Two, it tells us that evil is submitted to God. God is still in authority over evil. I mean, I think back to, we talked about Job, I think it was last week, right? Satan had to go ask permission to torment Job. And God said, you can go torment Job, but I'm only going to let you do this and this and this to him. Sounds kind of familiar. God was restraining the evil that Satan wanted to do against the man. And then Satan had to come back and ask for more permissions. Hey, I want to do a little bit more. He's going to deny you. God says, no, he's not. And now you can go do this and this and this and this to him. I think that's the same idea, the same, the same authority that God is currently exercising, that he is holding back the forces of Satan. He is, he is in authority over the power of Satan. He's not letting him have his way with the world in the way that he might would desire. Because, because ultimately, God is in control over everything that he has created. Even those things that are evil, he is able to hold back, to restrain And what's going to happen is there's going to come a time. It's going to get slowly worse and worse and worse and worse. There's going to come a time when God is going to kind of let go of a leash, in a sense. He's going to let evil fully run its course. And that's when this kind of, we'll call it anti-perusia, right? This, this, this revealing of this great, powerful wickedness will, will rise and declare itself to have defeated God. Right? He's going he's gonna to let it go. He's going to say, this is as bad as it gets. We're going to let it get really, really 
bad now. He's going he's to release the chains that he's been using to hold back evil. And once he's, and once he's free, he's going to kind of declare, we've won. We have this, I am greater than God. Maybe, it, maybe it's a world leader that comes to power, or maybe it's just this, this united front of people who declare that we have overcome God. We don't need him anymore. We know more. We're smarter than. We're more powerful than God. Who knows exactly what that will look like, but what we know is that ultimately God is the one that's allowing it to take place. And those who aren't in Christ, right? He calls them those who are perishing. Which is like the exact opposite phrase that he uses to talk about those who are saved. He says, those who are being saved. Those who are being made more like Christ. So so if you're not in Christ, you are perishing. You may not be dead yet. But it's not going to get better for you. Come the end. So, so So the ones who are called, those who are perishing, will be deceived by this guy. They're going to... They're going to buy into this idea that there is a force greater than God. Someone more powerful than the creator of everything. They're going to, they're going to see this deception and they're going to love it. They'll have heard there is God. And they will have rejected God. And what does it say? Those who have rejected God. Those who have, who have, who have bought into their sins. Who have loved their sin. Who have, who, have, who have desired to run after the deception. God's going to give them over to it. That's what it says, I think, in verse 11. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. Here's what I don't want us to take home from this. That it's not on them that they ran away from God. They rejected God and God said, you get what you want. And he blinds them to the truth. Right? It says the same thing. Uh, it says a very similar thing of Pharaoh. It says that God hardened his heart. Like, like he, was, he, was already, he had already rejected God. He had been given opportunities. You know, Moses said, let my people go do this. Just, just, just know that there is a God of my people who is greater than all of your gods. And he rejected that God. And God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Same idea. They rejected God and God said, all right, you're going to get what you want now. That's the thing we have to realize about what he calls it here, those who are perishing. Those who aren't in Christ are getting exactly what they want. They are getting their selfish desires. All those things that we read about uh, in, first, in 2 Timothy a few minutes ago. All of those things are the things that those who are not in the church have desired and that's what they're going to get. Paul says God is going to give them over to that. And they're all going to be condemned for their rejection of God. It's their responsibility that they are going to be separated from God forever. So it's not God's fault. That's the point. I don't want us to take home that it's God's fault. Where we blame God for destruction and the destruction separation from him that happens at the end. We can't blame God for this. Because, because ultimately we are the ones who have rejected him. So they got what they wanted because they believed the lie. But here's the cool part. And this is the part that I want us to end on. Let's go back to verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed. So, so you get this one half a sentence, half a verse. So then evil finally gets to take its spot. What's the rest of that sentence? Whom Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So the moment evil has its own arrival, 
evil is here, it's going to be stomped out right away. The moment that evil fully gets to run its course, it is going to be immediately smashed by the power of Christ at his actual revealing, his real arrival. It's like evil. You thought you were having an arrival. Jesus is going to show up and say, let me show you what a real arrival looks like. Right? It's going to, he's going to show up. He's going to step onto the scene. And everything that the world had seen before, that it thought was wonderful, that it thought was beautiful, is going to instantly just, just be blown away entirely. Completely removed because of the awesomeness, the, the glory of the appearance of Christ when he steps foot on earth again. When he comes back. That is what is going to trump everything else. So you could say that in the end, love wins. Just let that sit. You like that? I'm going to keep that one for us. We get to keep that phrase because in the end, Jesus wins. That's the take home. Like, like evil is here. Things are bad. Things are going to continue to get worse. I could end with that. It would be very true. Very depressing. But we got to remember, because we're the church, so we know the end. We don't buy into the deception, right? He says, those who aren't in Christ, they buy into the deception. We look at the evil that's going on in the world. We say, that's not going to defeat me. I don't need that. I don't love that. Because I know that in the end, Christ is going to come back and he's going to trump everything else. Christ is going to come back and he's going to win. It says the splendor of his coming, right? It just, it, again, it just kind of reminds us of the suddenness with which his return will take place. We talked about that like three or four weeks ago, how, how suddenly he will return. And it's going to overwhelmingly just, just, just put to shame this kind of puny little attempt that evil had to say, look, we are winning. So we're not waiting for... So what are we supposed to be waiting on, right? Because he says, Christ hasn't come back. Here's what it's going to look like before he comes back. So what are we supposed to do with this? We're, we're, we're not supposed to be sitting back and just waiting for this rapture. We're not supposed to wait for, for our big day where we get to go fly around in the clouds. We're supposed to actively be the church. We're supposed to continue to take the gospel everywhere we go without shame. We're not supposed to sit still. We're not waiting on the end of persecution. We're going to see the increased persecution and know that this is how God is is actively growing his church until the time that he would come back. And in the end, Christ is going to return and he's going to win. So, so where are we? Because there are two camps here that we've talked about. You've got the camp that that is rejecting God And in the end, they're going to be given over to their rejection of God. They're going to be completely deceived by the things of the world. And they're going to be be drawn away from God towards all these wicked things that we talked about earlier. That could be some of us. We could be those who who love the things of the world more than we love the things of God. We love love our sin. We We love our stuff. We love the things we get to do. We love our position in society. And we want to continue... To increase our position in society. Or are we the people who see those things and say, you know what? 
Christ is going to come back. And he's a whole lot better than any of those things. There's, there's nothing here that this world could give me that is ultimately more satisfying than Jesus. That's some of us. That's most of us. I want that to be all of us. Every week we, we pray that, that the people that God sees fit to draw into this place, to bring in here, that, that we would all so deeply love Jesus that we would so want him, that we would so be satisfied by him, that, that whatever else that's going on in our life, whether it's, whether it's pain and sorrow, suffering, or whether it's the desires of the world, whatever that may be, whatever that thing is that you, you so love, would just begin to pale in comparison to how beautiful Jesus is. So we know which group we're in based on how we respond to the gospel. We're going to take some time and we're going to respond here in a few minutes. And if you're not in Christ, I want you to be in Christ. I want you to know him. I want you to be part of this body of believers. Because the time is coming when, when, when God is going to just give you over to your sin and that's it. You don't get Christ once you've been given over to your sin. There's no coming back from that. And I don't want you to miss that. That there is no coming back. From once God gives these people over to their sin, that's it. So don't, don't, don't give yourself completely over to your sin. Run to Jesus. Because those who go on to destruction deserve it. We, well, I mean, we all deserve it. Right? We all deserve that. But thanks to the grace and mercy of Christ to draw us to himself, to bring us in, let's look to him and say, you are all that we need. We don't need anything else. So let's pray.